So some of you might know this is the second week that I'm preaching about the movie Up. I just found it so full of meaning and mystery and so magical to watch. And that the, what I saw up on screen was instantly enjoyable, but that it took a lot of time to filter down into me. And so I thought I'd give this movie two weeks. So let me tell you what it is that I'd like about Up most. There is no one like me who factors in it in any important way at all. And I'm not just talking like the white straight male part. I'm talking age. The most coveted demographic we hear. Anyone study this stuff? The most coveted demographic, 18 to 49. 18 to 49 year olds, where the money is, where the influence is, 18 to 49, everyone wants to get to that market and drill down into it to try and get them to buy their products. Well, the coveted 18 to 49 market, they might be going to see this movie. I am, have obviously gone to see this movie, but that coveted demographic group, almost entirely absent. There is one representative of the 18 to 49 demo group in it. And he is a complete angular yuppie construction builder jerk. <laughs> he exists for about a minute and a half on screen. We don't know his name. His cell phone is surgically attached to his ear. And all we know is that he presents a threat to the main character, to the main character, Carl Friedrichsen. Now, but I do have to say if that Pixar didn't have the phenomenal track record of making gobs and oodles of money time after time after time, just imagine you are, I don't know, Louis B. Mayer, one of those old heads of the studios with a cigar hanging out of your mouth and who's skeptical and derisive of every idea ever brought to you. And you had this idea brought to you by someone who is unknown. An old man who doesn't have children and a young boy who doesn't have a father they take a ride in a floating house powered by millions of balloons. If you're Louis B. Mayer, you're wondering, Child Protective Service is what I need to call right now. <laughs> is the old man dangerous? Is he not to be trusted? This doesn't sound like a winning formula. There's no 18 to 49 folks in here. There's old people and young people. They don't buy as much stuff as people in the middle. But that's when the geniuses of who the Pixar people are really is brought home. Almost everything they make is an idea about the world functioning at its best, brought into vivid color and amazing life. And the idea just doesn't come first. The life comes first. But you see all throughout everything that they do, and especially in Up, that there is a very deep concept about the world operating at its finest and its deepest. And so this story of this childless man meeting this fatherless child of Carl, who is 78, and Russell, who is 8. I got to tell you, this past week, I spent a lot of time on YouTube because I was really, really, really trying to find this old advertisement. It was either for Hallmark or Kodak and it was in the early 80s, and I remember it because every time it was on, my mother was in the room. She burst into tears. 
And if I hadn't have been 14 and dismissive of everything that had to do with heartfulness, I probably would have burst into tears as well, too. So let me tell you the parameters of it. It is about an old man who's living on his own in an apartment building in a sort of an urban apartment complex. And it's clear that, well, he's isolated a lot of the time. And the conclusion of the commercial is what I remember most. And this is where I think it's either Kodak, because either a picture is left at the old man's door, or it's Hallmark because a card is left at the old man's door by a very small child who lives in the same apartment complex. And the emotional weight, obviously very sentimental, of this gift from this young child who is recognizing that this old man is isolated and the smile that comes to his face when he knows that someone has remembered him. I got to say, yes, it's very sentimental and its aim is to make us to buy some stuff. But it's also very moving. Anyone remember? Was that Kodak? Was that Hallmark? Anyone remember that ad? It was Hallmark? Okay. Well, this happens from time to time. With as much Googling as I do, sometimes there are things I just cannot find. And eventually, one of you will find it and send it to me within the next week. So I trust you to fill in the knowledge that I don't have. So I got to say, this movie affected me on all kinds of levels. And particularly, as someone who's in a very, very loving marriage but doesn't have kids, this idea of Carl connecting with a young child, when he himself has never brought up a child, was very powerful, very, very moving. And Russell and Carl need each other not just to keep the story going, not just to move the plot along, and it's very inventive, very fun, very sprightly. But Russell and Carl recognize in each other something very, very deep. Russell, the eight-year-old, and Carl, who is 78 and now a widower, They both know what it's like to be left alone. And not just left alone to go and do what you want to do, but left alone in a negative sense, left alone in a sense of being abandoned. It's clear that Russell doesn't have much of a relationship, and I forget the guy's name that he uses, but he never calls him his stepfather. He just keeps referring to him, I think, David or something like that all throughout the movie. And it's clear that his stepfather hasn't taken much of an interest in Russell as he grows up. And Carl, who has just lost his beloved wife, spends much of his time isolated, much of his time away from significant human interaction. And it's clear as we go through the movie that this sense of being alone, of being abandoned, although it can be a very negative, very painful thing, that there also can be much wisdom learned here as well, too. And that's where I get the title for today's message, what the young and the old can teach us, whether you are young, whether you are old, or whether you're like me, you're sort of in the middle. Because in the early years of life and the later years of life, there is much we know that we cannot control. And there is also much that we have to learn and relearn in childhood and in later life. And so the young and the old experience a great paradox, which is that as Carl and Russell are in the movie, they are marginalized. They are put to the side. Society doesn't expect too much out of them. But in that being on the margins, they also experience a great freedom. They experience the freedom of not being needed in obvious ways. We see that in the 90 seconds that the obnoxious builder Yuppie is on the phone. He's surrounded by people who want his opinion. That cell phone is surgically attached to his ear. He is at the center of things. 
And yet it's really clear, as the movie says, he's not particularly alive. The freedom that Carl and Russell have is that because they are not needed in the obvious ways, it is then that their gifts can truly come to the surface. It is then that their gifts that they give to each other and to the world beyond themselves, that they can truly thrive and come to life. So I'm going to show you a video in just a second. For those of you who were here last week, well, this will be the second time you'll see it. To be honest, I don't think you can see up or any part of it enough. But when they meet, we see that Carl is resistant. And Russell is, well, let's just say he comes on a little strong in his desire to share his gifts. He's a little over-eager in his really spiffy wilderness explorer outfit in terms of how he thinks Carl needs help. Let's roll that video if we have it up. Congregational core values here at Wellsprings is about discovering spiritual gifts. And the way that we articulate that in a very particular way is that discovering your spiritual gifts is not about just asking you the question, what are you good at? It's more about asking the question, what do you like doing? What do you yearn to do? And how can we together help you do it in a better, deeper, more fulfilling fashion? Part of the value behind that value I have seen here at Wellsprings, and it is magical, absolutely magical, spiritually, when I see it come to life, is when I see people becoming an I-don't-know-it-all. People who can say, I will allow myself to go into the place beyond my expertise, beyond my comfort zone, beyond what it is that I know that I do well and so I know other people will like me and grant me approval through it because I do it well. Carl and Russell are wonderful models of I don't know it alls. In fact, it is the very source of their gift, their soul, and their soulfulness that they have to, at their different stages of life, relearn all the time what it is they thought they knew so that they can create themselves to become the people who they want to become. They experience in this film, in their flying away eventually in that house, because that is Carl's solution to the builder who wants to take over his land. He just attaches it to all those millions of balloons that he had collected over the years when he was a balloon seller at the circus, at the zoo. They experience multiple chrysalis moments. Also one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings. That each of us is called to know, not just in a once and done way, but called to know deeply that because all of life is about change, whether it's a change we seek or a change that seeks us out, whether it is a change that is positive or a change that is painful, that in that change, we have the opportunity to become something new, just as the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. This is something that those of us, and I speak for myself, something that those of us in that coveted market middle, that 18 to 49, sometimes forget. And so we, and I say we here truly, because I'm 39, I will be 40 next year, I will be set up for the midlife crisis. <laughs> That's appalling to me. I'll be set up for the midlife crisis. And actually, I'm the kind of person who's been having midlife crises since I was 21. So I think I will get through that okay, to be honest with you, and I'm not going to flake out on you. But one of the reasons 
that I think a midlife crisis is so painful. And I don't mean to diminish them because they are real. For people, as they start to approach and get into midlife, the midpoint through much of life, is that it is thought of as a big event rather than just part and parcel of what it means to be human, which is what Russell and Carl know. Change is part of life. We are always bumping up against the things that we cannot control. But when we sometimes get into midlife and we expect that, okay, we are settled now. How many of us want to live settled lives? Well, also how many of us know that is an illusion anyway? This illusion that we can live a set of life, that sets us up for the quote-unquote big midlife crisis. The seeds of the problem lie in its conception as a singularity, that everything ought to be settled. Maybe because we do forget how deeply woven change is into the very fabric of existence from the cradle into the grave. And we forget that this is not just a daunting thing, this is a wonderful thing. We forget that to be alive at its deepest level is always to be listening and learning and developing and expanding in some way. That that invitation is always made to us. Our great sage Thoreau in Walden, and yes, he had it easy. He wasn't married. He didn't have kids. It was easy for him just to pick up stakes and go and live by the side of the pond for a while there in Walden. But his words still are wise. He wrote, how vigilant are we, determined not to live by faith if we can avoid it at all costs. All the day long we are on the alert. At night we unwillingly say our prayers. So thoroughly and sincerely are we compelled to live reverencing this small life and denying the possibility of change. There is only way we one way, we say, but all change is a miracle to contemplate, but it is a miracle that is taking place every instant. He quotes Confucius. Confucius said, to know that we know what we know and that we do not know what we do not know, that is true knowledge. Sounds just a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld excusing that part. Confucius was right. To know that we know what we know, and that we do not know what we do not know, that is true knowledge. Thoreau is quoting Confucius here because he is observing what he sees in his life and what we see in our lives, which is that seeing things by rote, by shorthand all the time, by lowering them to their lowest common denominator so we can ask, what is this and what can I do with this and how sometimes can I get beyond this? Seeing by rote is the surest way to spiritual death that I know. How necessary it is for all of us to be reminded of what we cannot control, of what we don't yet know, if we really want to keep growing in life. Whoever it is, just tell them we're busy. It's cool. And that gets us to the mission statement for the movie that I quoted last week and was really the theme of our time together. The mission statement for the movie when Carl seems to have lost faith that there is a next chapter in his life. 
the mission statement for the movie that his deceased wife, Ellie, has written to him, and he discovers at the most critical time in his life. She writes, thanks for the adventure. Now go and have another one. She releases him. Because the calling of being fully alive is honestly to recognize that we are never fully completed. And the glory of our life is to recognize that development and growth and change are here in this very instant as in any other. That our lives are not just a serial conception of task after task after task, anxiously awaiting what the next task will be to prove how perceptive, competent we can be at it. But instead to conceive of life in every day, in every way, as an expression, even if it's very, very small, of our essential giftedness in being alive. Living awakened in this way is kind of like a wonderfully never completed work of art. You see, we, we tend and I tend to think of a work of art as something that is finished and in a frame. We go and we take a look at a work of art like I will probably do in a gallery in Provincetown in Cape Cod sometime this week and I will look at the pretty art and I will feel like, hey, I've looked at art this week. It must be a successful vacation. But a work of art is not what is in the frame. For the ongoing work of art is the greatest work of art at all because the work is still active and it is not finished. A frame is very much like a container. A container that sets the work of creation and the work of art off in many ways from the rest of life. And I think at our best, we are meant, all of us, to learn to continue to color outside the lines and outside the frames and outside the boundaries and the borders of what we consider to be sometimes the very narrow nature of our lives. So coloring outside the lines, beyond the borders and the boundaries of what we know, when we do this, we experience the beauty of the release from business as usual. It was Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist teacher who we quote week after week here at Wellsprings. This is where he says that impermanence is a blessing. It is a challenge, but impermanence is a blessing because if change is always happening, that means we are always being given an invitation to grow. As scary as that might be, we are always being given an invitation to grow grow in some ways that might be surprising and to reconnect with some of the oldest parts of who we are, which is what I think Jesus meant when he pointed to a child once when he was preaching in the Gospels and said, unless you become like one of these little ones, you won't see heaven. You won't experience what is heavenly. The key word in there is like, unless you become like one of these little ones, not become a little one. And I've been thinking about up and this quote from Jesus' Gospels and Michael Jackson recently. I think Michael Jackson was not in any way childlike, not in the way that we talked about it, not in the sense of recovering or discovering the beginner's mind, the twice-born experiences that the great psychologist William James talked about that come to any and all regardless of religious tradition. Michael Jackson was, in the most tragic way, not childlike, but he existed in a state of arrested development. It was as if, if you've seen the movie Up, Russell was to stay eight years old for all of his years. Now, I don't want to get too much into Michael Jackson because I think we could probably never end there as all the cable stations seem to be showing us right now. Let's say this, though. 
that he was a genius in creating a certain kind of art and that he was also a cash cow from an early age and because of this suffered from grave physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse. And what I believe about Michael Jackson and why he went on to damage other lives as well is that because the invitation for him to grow was not offered, not proffered by those closest around him, he was unable to flourish. And so he chose to make his life a cosmetic nightmare to hide that deeper nightmare that I believe he was locked in. No one who takes the amount of drugs that it's reported that he took, living life that addicted, is truly ever a healthy or a whole person. But it's deeper and bigger than Michael Jackson, as gifted as he was and as troubled as he was, because the secret horribleness of our culture-wide fascination with fame is that fame is a form of dogma. Fame is a form of dogma in this way. Dogma is an identification of one way of being alive with only one way of being. So unless you act in that way, you are not experiencing true depth and meaning and purpose in life. When fame is a dogma, this is what Neil Young was singing about back in the late 70s when he said it's better to burn out than it is to rust. That's what he meant. I don't think he meant that as a healthy thing. I think he was saying that when your life as a star is defined by the dogma of fame, people would rather have you be a star that goes out quickly than someone who just spends time rusting because the dogma of fame does not like change. It wants things to stay as they are so that we can continue to be fed by those who we think have the gifted creative power. This is, of course, an exhaustion, this dogma of one personal gifts into one form and one form only. It is a form of straitjacketing our souls and our lives. And that's actually how we know the villain in Up, who's Charles Muntz, the once great, now disgraced adventurer. His development was arrested a very, very long time ago when he was disgraced for reporting the discovery of a new species that he found in South America where he was visiting to the place called Paradise Falls. And he is the villain of this movie because his development is so arrested and because he spends the rest of his life as Carl and Russell become to know him, seeking to capture and to keep and to abscond with this exotic wildlife to justify his own life. He cannot move through the fact that at one point people didn't believe him any longer. And so that's where the movie draws its traumatic tension, that Carl and Russell try to free what Charles Muntz tries to keep in captivity. Now, before Carl can do this, he has to liberate himself from some of the baggage of his own life before he can free another. There is an amazing, amazing scene probably the most dramatic scene visually in Up. After the balloons and the house have come down right near Paradise Falls, but not so close to it that they can fly it across a gorge to land right near those beautiful falls, Carl, recognizing that the balloons will not carry the house any further, tethers himself to his house, his house of memories that were a blessing for him for so many years, and literally, have any of you ever seen the movie Fitzcarraldo? 
This is what it's based on. Fitzcarraldo was a very quixotic story of a guy who wanted to build an opera house in 19th century South America. And this image of Carl literally bowed and stooped, trying with all his might to carry his burden, which was his blessing. He has to learn how to let it down and how to let it go. Because as good as it was, that home and that house has now come to an end. He has to let it go before he can be there for Russell, who needs a model and a mentor, and before he can save the bird who Russell calls Kevin, this exotic species of wildlife that no one has ever seen before. And I think this is another example of the genius at Pixar, that they chose an endangered bird to be their object of captivity or freedom. I think they knew exactly what they were doing when they created a feathered creature as the object of hope and freedom. I think they were quoting Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Carl has to let the house fly away one final time. Hope has to fly in order for it to be hope. Hope. We're popular today, aren't we? Hope is the thing with feathers because the feathers allow it to move beyond the ground. We cannot ground our hope for good and expect it to remain hope, unchangeless, remaining the same now as we always hope it would be. We cannot ground our lives for good and expect that our souls will truly fly. And so I'd ask you, if you haven't seen it, just imagine it, but if you've seen it, put yourself in the place of Carl, carrying, tethered, Bound by this image of his house. What are you carrying this morning? What are you carrying this morning? Even if it was a wonderful, blessed thing. Even if it might have been the best thing that you ever knew in your life. But you know that the time has come to let it go. That's hard work. And that's, of course, part of why we're here. To know that there is freedom in release. And not just in one release in life, but in many. And so up ends where the house has been left. Carl has released it. He has saved the young boy. The boy is able to grow. His development will not be arrested. And it sits there, right by Paradise Falls. Sitting there, that house, that home, its journey fully completed. Paradise has not fallen. It is just there. And their journey is complete. Had me thinking, one of my favorite little works of arts, of writing. It's by Bart Giamatti. Some of you may have known was the president of baseball for a couple of years in the late 80s. Was a scholar, a fine man, at one point president of Yale Law School as well. And the title of this beautiful book and I particularly think about it before I start my vacation, is this, 
Take time for paradise. Take time for paradise, because if we don't take time for paradise, paradise will not take time for us. Take time for paradise. And he sees refracted through the game of baseball, as I know not all of you do, but I certainly do. This invitation to join the game, to find in the game not just achievements, but pleasure in the process of being able to play at all to begin with. Giamatti says about the game, and I think this is true in life. One hoped not so much to be the best who ever played as simply to stay in the game and ride the game wherever it would go, culling and riding its rhythms and realizing its promises. So I'd encourage you, take time for paradise. Take time to let down your burdens. Take time to get lost from yourselves. Take time, whether you are between the ages of 18 and 49, or younger than that, or older than that, to remember what Carl and Russell can teach us. That because life is about change, the most we can do is answer that call and ask, how here How now? What's the shape of my awakening look like in this very moment? And in that, we will stay in the game and ride this life wherever it will go. And we will know something of paradise. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of arts and creation and games and all that that we would call by the name of paradise. Let us see the change that is in our midst right now. See the beckoning for the next step and the next stage that we can realize within ourselves. Know that this invitation is never once and for all but present, bidding us to awaken, bidding us to become, bidding us to be, to be the fullness of our lives that can be promised us, to be the beauty of creation still in the act of creation, to be a work of art, not framed, sometimes even unfocused, but drawing upon and ever drafting that glorious beauty that exists at the very hearts of this life. Amen.